0: If you got a Bible, you could turn to Acts chapter 2, as those things are going, as the plates are going around. Acts chapter 2 is where we're at. Uh, I want to get you oriented. Uh, we are in the middle of a, I guess not middle quite yet, we're just in the first few weeks of a sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, I want to orient you. Some of you are visiting. I want to say especially welcome to everybody who's here for uh, for family weekends, for the fine institutions in our city. Uh, we are delighted to have Have your kids uh, with us as a part of the church and worshiping. Uh, If you're here uh, because of that, um, thank you. I just want to give you a little report. Um, Your kids are just behaving perfectly. Um, They've been in by nine every night. Uh, The only thing that outstrips the reputation of their character are their study habits. I mean, you just wouldn't believe. Uh, It's really amazing. So thank you. Uh, I know that for many of you, coming here even this weekend represents probably an ongoing kind of Uh, battle between letting go and praying and and staying in touch but not hovering and those kinds of things so we're praying for you in that thank you for uh for your your kids we're grateful for them to be even a part of our church it injects energy and life into what we do and we want to do our best to care for them and bless them as well so anyway all that said acts chapter 2 is where we're at i'm going to begin reading in verse 42 uh, and we're going to read just through the end of the chapter. Uh, We've been spending a number of weeks walking through uh, Acts, trying to do our best to to grapple with it, to understand it, to squeeze out all of the the goodness that we can get in the time that we have together. So I'm going to begin reading in the 42nd verse of Acts chapter 2, and I'd invite you to read along with me. There's a Bible right in front of you there if you need one. It should be a black one. Take that if you need a, a free Bible. Second chapter of Acts, verse 42. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Oh God, would you send your spirit to give us insight into your word. I pray that even as we read these words and receive the gift that it is, of Your revelation. God, stir in us a gratefulness. A gratefulness that despite the fact that You are inexhaustible, that Your ways are incomprehensible to us, though You dwell in unapproachable light, You are other. You are beyond. You alone are holy. Despite that fact, You have drawn near. You are a revealing God. Father, thank You for condescending and speaking in human words that we might grapple and reach and seek and find You. God, would You remind us of the wonder of Your Word? The wonder that it is that we sit to hear from You? And God, I pray for all of us who are here today that we would come underneath this Word, that we would be the kind of people that Jesus spoke of, those who have ears, let them hear. God, let us be the hearing kind here this morning. Give us eyes and stir our hearts so that we could walk in obedience to the things that you've shown us. And I pray that You would protect us, that You'd care for us, that You'd transform us uh, through Your Word. We need Your help. Pour out Your Spirit on us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Unconquered. That's the word that we've used. Unconquered. I know it's sort of cheesy, you walk by the statue in front of Dope Campbell like my family did yesterday, we got to go to the game, it was exciting, the boys were there and they kept saying things like, when do the football players get off so those ladies that twirl the fire come out? <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they, they love marching chiefs, that's their thing. And so we walk out and we walked by and of course there's the statue right and it says uh, unconquered. And the reason that we've used that word for Acts is something is happening in this book. Something is happening in this book. It's as though God is reaching down and putting a stamp of approval. He's putting a definitive mark on the work of Jesus Christ. Acts shows us, and it's showed us time and time again throughout history. This is the beginning of a historical record of the gospel being unconquered. The truth of the Gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, was not in vain. That's what Acts is showing us. The Gospels outline the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And then Acts. Acts is this beautiful explosion of God saying, Jesus wins. Acts happens because Jesus won victory over sin and death and the grave. That's why it says unconquered. The gospel is unconquered because Jesus bore our sins on the cross, met death, and conquered it. That is what we're seeing in Acts. And I want to frame for you this little picture that we just read. We pictured this, this amazing moment in time, a little snapshot of the church at the end of Acts chapter 2. And you read it and you almost think to yourself, oh, come on, right? Could there be a more picture-perfect, pristine idea of what a church is supposed to be? You just take this and just plaster it up on the front of our building. Here's, Here's perfect church in Candy Cane Lane, right? It almost seems like this can't possibly be. What is God telling us with this picture of the church? This is like that pristine Instagram moment, right? It's like perfect lighting. Perfect lighting with like the leave it to beaver filter over the top, right? This is, this is a Facebook version of the early church. It has to be, right? This is the highlights of life in the church because nobody has a filter on Instagram for like fetal position flare, right? No one has that one. No one has like conflict cover up filter on Instagram. Everybody just shares the perfection of their lives, I have a particular friend that looking at his Facebook is just depressing. He's a pilot, and he uses all of his off days to just fly to these crazy places. And he's always hiking. Like, I just don't know. Every time I look at it, I just look and think, like, okay, what, what next? And there he is, like, backpack skiing off the top of a mountain in Wyoming. Just, just rugged, right? Just, just totally. And then a week later, oh, just did the tallest bungee jump in South Africa amazing yes amazing great right the day after that facebook picture from a great white shark tank off of the coast and you just think to yourself like there's a sense in which you can get a picture of life that's sort of not it's not real it's been glossed over a little bit and we know that the early church had problems right the early church was not this bastion of just amazing peace and joy and comfort the early church, where every family is perfect, every, every Christian a theologian, right? Conflict-free. We wouldn't have the New Testament if that was the case. Paul is constantly having to sit down with pen and paper and like, oh, there's problems again. Let me, let me write this out. Let me teach. Let me instruct. So the question becomes, why this pristine picture? Why, why open up this this window for us to look into the life of the early church what is happening here and i'm going to attempt to put this particular section at the end of acts chapter 2 into a context i think what's being displayed for us what's being displayed for us is the kind of inward life of a spirit-filled church this is the inward life of a spirit-filled church around four oaks we use these terms often Inward, upward, and outward. Inward, upward, and outward. We talk about this in our pastor's meetings. We pray this way when we're together as elders. We talk about our ministries. We want the gospel to take shape in every aspect of our life. We want to be gospel-oriented in our worship. In other words, we come to God in boldness only because Jesus gave us His merit, not in our own works. Our worship needs to be informed by the gospel. Our connection to the outside world needs to be informed by the Gospel. We have grace for others because we've been given unthinkable grace in the Gospel. We don't exchange a spoonful of humility toward God in order to pour out gallons of pride on all of the heathen brethren around us. We want the Gospel to inform our connection to the outside world. Right? And... We want the gospel to inform our connections inside, inwardly. We want to be fully orbed in the way that we operate as a church. We don't want to be the guy who skipped leg day, right? Just like huge, bulky, behemoth of a man with like teeny tiny little legs, right? We don't want to get, we don't want to get deformed because we're so robust and big on one area. I want to be fully orbed. And so I'm going to take this moment to just take that grid and kind of lay it over the top of Acts chapter 2. We ended two weeks ago talking about the Holy Spirit coming in fullness. What did it look like to be filled with the Spirit? The disciples, the 120 that were gathered, the Holy Spirit came and immediately, miraculously, in a strange, weird, are you drunk kind of way, they began declaring and extolling the mighty works of God. Worship happened. Their relationship with God fundamentally changed forever by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Acts two: 1 to 13. Acts 2, 1 to 13 the upward orientation of the disciples' lives was changed forever. Their worship took on a new connotation. They became the kind of people that Jesus said God desires. The Father looks down and says, I desire worshipers in the earth. People who worship in spirit and in truth. And we ended that particular section of Acts 2.1-13 talking about how worship, true and right worship, was the result of being born again. If you are made new in the Spirit, you delight in God. One of the marks that you know that God is drawing you to Himself is you begin to delight in the things that He delights in. You begin to hate the things that He hates. That's what conviction is, is all about. And ultimately, you find in yourself a desire for spiritual things. And not just spiritual things. You would find in yourself a desire for God Himself that was not there previously. To be filled with the Spirit means that your upward orientation has changed forever. And then last week, 14 to 41, we saw that the work of the Holy Spirit is not merely private It is not a merely private exercise where you are given fruit of the Spirit for love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, faithfulness, goodness and self-control. It's not just a merely inward orientation. The gospel goes outward when people are filled with the Spirit. Peter stands up and he proclaims. He says to the outside world, and not just in, I need to explain my seemingly drunk friends to you. He proclaims because the Spirit has come and it changes the way He talks to the people who have a need for forgiveness. And then I think in just a very good old-fashioned way, 42 through 47, six little verses, show us what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit in the way that we relate to one another. What is this thing called church? Who are we? Who are we to be? What are we to be about? And I want to put this in context. Many of us look at the activity of the first part of Acts chapter 2 and we think to ourselves, that's miraculous, that's interesting, but that is all kinds of crazy. And I want you to to keep that back there in the first century. Keep that kind of thing as far away from me as you possibly can. And then you even get to Peter and you think like, well, at least it's not the craziness of the first part, but I'm not sure I could be that bold. I'm not really sure about that. And then you get here to the end and it could be tempting to think, Oh, the Holy Spirit was all about miraculous tongues of fire. And the Holy Spirit is all about Peter preaching and converting people in repentance. And it's tempting for us to miss that for us to be the kind of people that we are designed to be, we need the Holy Spirit to fill us. And this is the result. The inward life of the church results from being filled with the Spirit. It is inevitable. I want you to see that. It is inevitable when the Holy Spirit falls that He connects people together in significant relationships and they become church. That is what is happening at the end of Acts chapter 2. So let me just walk through the text. It's one of the gifts of us only having six verses to look at today. We get to just just dive in. We're just going to dive right in. And I want you to note right at the beginning that the connection again is Is used, is described with this word devoted. Devoted. We we saw it in verse 14 back in Acts chapter 1. They were devoted to praying. I told you then, and I would repeat it again, that devotion here sounds a lot like the word for prayer. So in Acts chapter 1, Luke is getting a little bit of Dr. Seuss all up in here, right? Alliteration. There's words, there's devotional devotion, right? That's kind of the idea, the way that it would read in Greek. In this particular word, the way that they were connected to one another, he uses the same word for the way that they're committed to prayer and the way that they're committed to their relationship with God. They are committed to one another. You do not get placed alive in Jesus Christ with a rock-solid eternal commitment to Him without a corresponding rock-solid eternal commitment and connection to the people of God you will be in heaven one day forever not alone on a fluffy white island with you and jesus but it will be you and the community of god from every tribe tongue nation people and language and your connection to them will be just as important it'll be just as significant maybe the word important was a bit much it will be significant they were devoted themselves In other words, the way they acted together was intentional. They knew that each other, the relationships, was a gift from God. When I looked it up, you know what this word meant like in a good English translation of devoted? Obstinately persistent. Obstinately persistent. Now that's an amazing word, a phrase. Have you guys ever been devoted to something with obstinate persistence? Anyone? Anyone have that personality? You might be obstinately persisting in something, something different every six months. Right? I have one of those personalities. The first few years of our marriage, Sarah was like, I'm trying to figure you out because I would just get fascinated and I just want to go as deep as I possibly can with this one particular thing. Some of you can think right now of the thing that you are per, you're persistent in, obstinately so. You're maybe even embarrassed about it. You think like, oh man, if you saw the way that I persisted in keeping track of every one of my exercise routines, if you saw my list of foodie blogs, if you knew, if you knew how many details I know about, about soccer leagues in Europe right now, some of you love baseball and the playoffs are going, and I could give you stats about a sport that would just make you cringe because you have persisted in reading the, the stats. Obstinately persistent. That's the way that these people connected themselves to one another. They did not play at religion it was not something that was minor they devoted themselves the devotion comes we're going to see in just a moment the devotion comes because of what they had in common fellowship is sort of the the principle the sign that goes over everything that is taking place I'm going to go there first even though it comes second in the line of what's happening here because fellowship shows up in verse 42 and then also verse 44 is so significantly about fellowship and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That word common there is the word that underlies fellowship, koinonia. It is the commonality of these Christians that brought them together. You know, there is nothing more powerful to bring people together in relationship than things that are in common. Your best friends, the people you care to spend time with the most and talk with the most, it's not because you see things completely different and have nothing in common. In fact, when you meet someone, the measure of success of that meeting, how was coffee with so-and-so? How was the first date? Oh, how was your double date with those new friends that just moved in down the street, Right. The measure of success, whether you know you're saying this or not, at the end of the day is, what was the level and depth of our commonness? What did we have in common? When you stand next to someone and you say, do you see what I see? That latches you together in fellowship. There were some guys this morning that I almost ran off the road while I was driving. They were bicycling. Some of you are bicycle people, right? Or you've, you've either, you either are a person who rides bicycles or you have come across a herd of bicycles on the road. Anyone? You've done this before? So I'm driving. There's this big group of guys. It's early in the morning. And they're driving by and I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at their faces, partly because I'm thinking... Is Jeff Schaefer in this group? Is Pete Butler in here? These are all friends of ours from the church. And I'm just looking at the faces. Tyler, is that you? No. So I'm looking at the faces as they go by. And I'm thinking to myself, what an amazing thing that these men found each other this morning. At who knows what time. And now they are traveling in a dangerous herd down, down the road. What an amazing thing, right? Can you see the 10,000 foot view over the, over the city of Tallahassee? People stirring from their beds. Guys probably racing the sun. Like, I'm up first. No, I made it first, right? That early. They go and stretch out the spandex. <laughs> put it on, right? Get the alien hat, helmet. Put all that stuff on, right? And these bikers. That's too strong of a name. Do they call themselves bikers? That's like this, right? <laughs> I mean more like this, right? These bikers, right? These bikers, then you're looking over the city and then all at once, he's these got garage doors open and doors open out of the front and bicycles come out. And like, like just an organized little army of ants. I'm just gathering, gathering together and showing up at the same corner. And early in the morning, in all the craziness that is biking, then going off and saying like, let's hit the road and ride in unison together for an hour. You know why? Because at some point, one guy looked at the other and said like, hey, do you like bicycles? I do like bicycles. We have that in common, right? There's a commonness about something that they appreciate and enjoy. There's something that latches them together that puts them in the craziest of circumstances. The church found themselves whether they knew it or liked it or had ever met any of the people around them, that one day they were made alive in the Holy Spirit and they looked around and they said, are you made new in Jesus Christ? Are you going to be His eternally, forever? And if yes, then you and I, buddy, we're connected in a way that is unlike any other human connection. This is what the Gospel does. It gives us a commonness that supersedes every bit of socioeconomic status, rich or poor. It goes way across all demographics. I have sat and prayed with 80 some year old men and cherished every moment because of our commonness in Jesus Christ. Men and women and race, and race I can't, race. that was a uh, tank in Halo. Race and ethnicity, right? Race and ethnicity, the gospel covers every single one of these categories. The gospel gives you, whether you like it or not, you look around this room and you look at a person who has been granted you in a kind of fellowship and togetherness that cannot be separated ever. Have you considered that? All those phases that I talked about, the commonness. For a while, I could get into biking, right? And then my bike could break. My back could go out. How many things have you been devoted to and persisted in the past and now you look back and you think to yourself, yourself, man, we used to talk every single day. And now I just don't do that thing anymore. And now it's gone. Do you know that in Jesus Christ, your sense of togetherness and connection and what you have in common will never be gone. You have inherited brothers and sisters in Christ. Your family is given to you the day that you are filled with the Spirit of God. And that fellowship to the early church was something they cherished, something they devoted themselves to, something that they persisted in because they saw the value of that thing. All that they had, they had all things in common. What else were they devoting themselves to? They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves to teaching. There's some sense where we disconnect the work of the Holy Spirit from this verse because it seems so unspiritual. Many of us have been seeking for years and maybe maybe have thought that the Holy Spirit is mainly about feelings and experience and not about the mind. And I would say to you that the early church proves over and over and over and over again to be receiving the Holy Spirit and not loving God with your mind is an offense to the Holy Spirit. To receive the Holy Spirit and only utilize Him as an emotional experience and not see that the Spirit is a spirit of truth who moves us in devotion to teaching is an offense to the Holy Spirit. The church was devoted. Why do we preach the Bible? Because the early church taught, and lived under, and listened to, and wrestled with the very words of Scripture. They were committed, devoted to the apostles' teaching. It wasn't just teaching for teaching's sake. It was teaching in fellowship, and that's important. For a long time, I resisted going to an institutional seminary. I was working at a church, and I thought, I want to do correspondence online stuff, and eventually, I, I ended up at a seminary, and I was terrified that it was going to be just this ivory tower of completely divorced academic nonsense, right? That's what I really thought it was going to be. I thought I'd have to get, like, I would get government issue glasses when I got there and just, like, just completely be disconnected from people's lives. It was not the case. My experience there was that teaching in community was vital and amazing and important. It was a gift to me to get to study the Word of God with people. And I think that's significant that they were doing it in relationship because it's hard to follow the commands of Scripture individually. You come to the apostles' teaching. Verses like, Love one another and so fulfill the command of Christ. Boy, that's hard to do by yourself. Right? It is fundamentally difficult. It is impossible for you to listen to and walk in the apostles' teaching by yourself. There's some poor Christian guy on a desert island saying, God, I want to be faithful to You and to Your Word. And he's looking around and he's just like, if only I had someone to forgive. right? If only I had someone to bear their burdens. If only I had someone I could serve because Christ came to serve. They were devoted to teaching in fellowship because our teaching from the Word of God assumes our relationship with the people around us. It assumes it. Some of the other things they were doing are very common and should be exciting to us. <clears throat> the breaking of bread. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that God has designed us as humans to love food. What a gracious God He is, right? Three times a day, at least... <laughs> Not to mention all the snacking, right? Three times a day with delicious food, tongues that produce and then reproduce taste buds. Wouldn't that be terrible? How many times have you burnt your tongue in a fit of and then just been angry afterwards? It's nothing I, I I hate burning my tongue. I will buy a cup of coffee, it will sit there for 30 minutes while I talk at the coffee shop. I hate to burn my tongue. At the end of the day, it's not the pain. You know what it is? It's the loss of taste. I I cannot fathom eating food and not tasting it. What a gift that God only not only gave you taste buds, but it's not like your teeth, that when they fall out, they're gone. You burn your taste buds in the pursuit of taste, and then God says, okay, I'll bring them back. I'll regenerate them. Here they are again. More taste. I'm grateful that we have a God who connects people around eating. Twice in these six verses, the breaking of bread is significant in the, part in the life of the church. If you love someone, if you're connected with them, if you have commonness with them in any measure, before long you will be stuffing your face with them. Is that not true? How many traditions, how many moments with loved ones are completely devoid of food and or drink? Almost zero, right? Almost zero. So there's a sense in which their togetherness include eating together. Although I would want to say that verse 42 in general, 42 and 43 show a conviction or a connection, a devotion to worship in general. The early church worshiped. The fact that there's a definite article. One of the things about learning another language is that you find out you never knew English. And so I found out when I was learning another language and they said, now now please take note, sir, of the definite article. And I just thought, like, get me out of here as fast as you possibly can. Here's a definite article. I'm leaving, right? Like, that's definite. The definite article, as everyone knows, is the word the. So it indicates for us something like if I said to you, if I said to you, a man is on the street. That's different than saying the man is on the street. Saying the something indicates a definitive statement that is probably assuming a body of knowledge that other people would know about. And so it's intriguing here in verse 42 that he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Most commentaries basically say the breaking of bread probably means that as often as they were coming together, they were taking the Lord's Supper. That by this time already in the early church, the breaking of bread and sharing it together denoted a kind of ongoing commitment to the Lord's Supper. They were taking the Lord's Supper together. We did a Q&A thing on Monday night. Somebody asked a great question. Why do you do communion every single week? Partly, partly, it's evidence like this. There's a ton of historical evidence that the early church persisted in consistently the Lord's Supper. Teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. The result of all of this worship and devotion of togetherness was good old-fashioned fear. That's the word behind awe in verse 43. Good old-fashioned fear of the Lord. A kind of understanding that God is other. And the fact that you can pray to Him and the fact that you have access to Him is an amazing and astounding thing. There's a sense in which this worship... We're not really sure upon every soul how wide it was. We know at least at this point, there is at least from the text so far that we've read, 3,120 Christians in Jerusalem. That's the number that we can come up with at least at this point. So the awe coming upon every soul, it might just mean those Christians, but I think in some sense, it's probably all of those who were watching this amazing burgeoning group, people having conversations in their homes like, do you remember that huddled mass of... People who used to follow that revolutionary guy, Jesus. Do you remember that? Have you seen what's happening with them? Have you heard what's going on? And then when they went to peek in and look, it was bolstered by wonders and signs. Many wonders and signs taking place in the midst of this group. I think the end of verse 43 is significant and it's instructive. At least it was to me. Wonders and signs were being done. How? Through the apostles. This is the second time already that the apostles have taken a particular front stage position in the early church. Their teaching was the devotion of the Christians. And now it seems like they played a significant role in the signs and wonders that were authenticating their gospel. You guys remember in Acts chapter 1, it wasn't too long that Luke brought us back and reminded us of the twelve. He said, oh yeah, remember there's a list of 12. And remember what happened with Judas? And how we, what are we going to do with Matthias? And how do we replace this? And the reason he's reminding us of the 12 is because we are seeing very early on that these apostles had an interesting, significant, I think very unique role in the founding of the church. The signs and wonders that they're doing. It's not just this particular section that it's mentioned the fact that these wonders and signs were done through the apostles. If you go one page to the right, I want you to note Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. How? By the hands of the apostles. And this is instructive and helpful to us, I think, for a few different reasons. At least this is why it's helpful to me mainly. I wonder sometimes when I look back on the early church, I think to myself, God, what is for us and what is not for us? Do you know that in a few short chapters there's going to be crazy things happening? Peter's shadow will heal people. His shadow will heal people. This is amazing. I believe that all the fullness of the Holy Spirit is, is for us, that God has not made second class Christians. I believe that God desires us to to be filled not with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. And yet I look back and I say to myself, how in the world is it that this whole experience was filled with wonders and signs and miraculous healings? And I think that what Luke is doing for us is he's giving us the uniqueness of the apostles at this time in the church. I just mentioned to you there were at least 3,108 other Christians at this time, right? Haven't we concerned that? There was 120 at Pentecost It said. 3,000 were added to their number in Acts chapter 2. And yet, it does not say that all of those people were also performing the same signs and wonders. And you could have been tempted, right? If were, what if you were one of those other people? You're one of the 3,000. You're like an early employee at Facebook or Walmart. And God's just pouring out signs and wonders through the 12. You might be thinking like, hey, hey here, Like, where's my my Jedi knowledge or whatever you need, right? And yet we never once get this impression that they were somehow second-class Christians. We never once get the impression that it was like the apostles were the only ones who had it figured out. They were the only ones with the fullness of the Spirit. If you really had faith and really walked by the Spirit of God, then you would be doing signs and wonders just like they were doing. I believe God does miraculous things. He has prerogative completely over amazing signs and wonders. I don't think there's anything in the text of Scripture that tells us definitively that all the miraculous has been done away with because we don't need it anymore. I think that is, that is taking these inferences way too far. But I do believe... That Acts clearly teaches us that the apostles had a unique measure of spiritual gifts, particularly as it pertained to signs and wonders, that authenticated their message as God's representatives and foundation of the church. Does that make sense? It helps me. Otherwise, I'd be going to bed thinking like, God, I'm not like the apostles. I must be missing it. I must not have all the fullness that you have for me. What's going on? I prayed for someone to get healed and they didn't get healed. It seems clear to me that these apostles, it's the reason that, that Luke injected them in chapter 1. It's the reason that Peter stands in, act, in the middle of Acts chapter 2. It's the reason that the signs and wonders are being done through them. They have a unique and I believe unrepeatable role in the life of the church. The next thing that we see is that they were committed not only to teaching and fellowship, bringing bread and praying, Not only did fear come because of signs and wonders being done, but they had a radical generosity. They were devoted to generosity between each other. Verses 44 and 45 have been used historically in almost every single instance of defending something like communism. Because there it is in the text, right? In verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need it's amazing really. The Spirit of God came. They looked around and they said, do you have Jesus Christ? Are you alive in Him? Have you been moved from darkness to light? Have you found your sins forgiven? Do you have an eternity and a hope that's solidly found in Christ and can never be removed? A place where neither moth nor rust destroy? Is that true? And when they all looked around and realized that was the case, it moved them to radical generosity with one another. It gave them new eyes to see the temporal nature of the life that they were living. All of the shiny toys lost a little bit of luster. That's what we're finding. And I'm very, very aware of the fact that throughout history, there's been some groups of Christians, Hutterites and Mennonites and, and many other variations of Christians have looked at these passages and use them as a a definitive defense of something very much like communism or socialism. And if you read through political diatribes about those same sorts of things, you would find these verses saying, this is the way that we were designed to live. Now here's the danger at this moment. One, I did an undergraduate degree in political science, but I have no desire to talk about politics (laughs) at this particular moment. I get to this moment though, and I'm reading it, and I'm just thinking like, boy, this sounds a lot like communism and you know what i'm supposed to do right and in a moment we're going to get there you know what i'm supposed to do i'm supposed to read through this and i'm supposed to to tell you why it doesn't say what it seems like it says i'm supposed to dismantle all of the notions of no lack of private property i'm supposed to walk through it and just say like just so everybody's cl- this doesn't mean actually be uncomfortable and sell some stuff and give generous it doesn't mean that this is what it means i'm supposed to qualify it all the way into the ground So that this amazing mountain vista of generosity that we're seeing in the early church eventually gets flattened out to a nice valley that we can walk across and ignore. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you why I don't think this is a description of political communism. I'm not telling you we've been wrong for 300 years. Like We should have taken the tax on the T. That's not the point, right? That's not where we're headed with this. But before dismantling that, can I just ask you for a few moments as a church to wrestle with the idea that radical generosity is a part of the life of the church? Radical, uncomfortable, amazing generosity. God forbid that we ever get to the point where our theology demands that we wash away every call to generosity that seems uncomfortable and crazy like this was in the church. And I believe that there are moments in life specifically when we see need. Specifically when there are brothers and sisters who you've been bonded to in Christ when there is real need in the church that God might call us to this level of Generosity, this level of self sacrifice. You could use examples of it all throughout the church. For many of us, God's call to generosity will not look like Acts chapter 2. But it would not take long for you to look through the history of the church and see moments when God has asked of individuals and families and sometimes groups of families, He, had, he has asked everything from them. He has asked everything. The Moravian community who made one of the longest lasting, hundreds of years long commitment and investment in missions to places that Jesus had never been named. It simply would not have been possible for them to make the impact they did apart from the fact that they sold everything. They sold everything, much like our passage here. And so when we come to a text like this and I say, okay, but look at verse Look at verse 46, and it doesn't mean this, and private property is not bad, and that's not what it means, right? That I don't want us to miss, I don't want us to miss the weight of the text, that when the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life, at times, it will be a call upon your generosity like you have never been called upon before. That's just what it seems like. All that to say, here is why I think this as a political statement about communism is completely false and dangerous. And it's why all of your third grade government teachers were correct. (laughs) This is why... The main thing missing from a text like this and the wonder of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives, here's the thing that is missing from Acts chapter 2 that is absolutely necessary in every form of political communism on the face of this globe. This simple word, coercion. To coerce generosity from someone is an evil and is an untenable position. There is not even a cent. You can't even smell a scent of coercion in this early church. The Spirit of God came and they looked around and said, who has need and what can we give and what can we sell? Generosity ceases to be generosity when it's backed up by a threat of a tank, right? And that is not what God is calling us to be. Around the world, in areas where this has been tried politically, it's basically said this. We believe in generosity and caring for one another's needs. We believe in equality. We believe in not having personal and private property. And you are free to disagree with us in jail. Right? That has been the basic idea behind communism. And that's not what we are finding here. Not only are we not finding coercion... But apparently, within one verse, if Luke is advocating no private property, everyone sell everything, within one verse, he forgets his message. He's the worst Marxist of all time. Verse 46, And day by day they attended the temple together, and breaking bread where? In their homes. Apparently, they maintained homes to some degree. They kept them. The idea was not go and create bunk beds in the midst of the church and everyone lived there together generosity is not about coercion and it's an amazing thing that fact though should make us more astounded at what's taking place in these you know why coercion is necessary to bring about communism you know why because of the human heart we hate it we hate it we have much more sophisticated ways of saying it but eventually the human heart is all just like a one-year-old whose first word is mine like mine right mine 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 it should tell us something about the nature of the human heart that it takes the threat of tanks to institute something like communism and yet when the spirit of god came these people looked around and they said i am not my own i've been bought with a price and all that i have can be given to those who have need this is amazing The next amazing thing about it is that that sort of commitment, that sort of generosity did not leave them in a mode of drudgery and sadness. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Do you know that every single thing that God might ask of you, He asks for your good? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered the fact that obedience to God, even in radical generosity, is always the joyful path? You must resist in every single moment the lie that obedience is somehow going to cost you long term happiness. It is simply false. There is no other path to joy in this life than a path of walking faithfully in obedience to God. There is no other path. You rob yourself. You rob yourself when, you, when we disobey. When I say yourself, myself. I rob myself. Lance, Lance I rob myself, right? When I rob, when I rob myself of the kind of joy. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. What a great picture. I, lo- I, I wish that we could be the kind of church that when people peek in, when people look in, they don't see people who are like, Leaving the church, just exhausted. Look, man, I'd love to sleep in on Sunday. I'm telling you, but someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do this religious thing. God's, God's just, he just needs us. He needs us. You know, I hate it every time I got to stomach those songs. Can't stand them. Guy yells at me for forty minutes using this old dusty book. Those people, I would never be friends with them, apart from going to that church, right? But let me tell you something. Do you need Jesus? This is great, great, right? That's, what we, that's how we act and how we are sometimes. Church is like the biggest drudgery of all time. Oh, it's a sacrifice, but I don't know. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They received it with glad and generous hearts. God, would you pour out on our church glad and generous hearts? Not the false kind, not the, not the kind that's really self comfort. In a guise, the kind that comes through spirit filled connection, devotion to teaching, breaking of bread, and praying. That is the kind of people that we need to be. And they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Here's the amazing part this has been spirit filled inwardness, and what's the result of spirit filled, amazing inwardness in the church? Growth. The church grows. It is not we either have great fellowship as a church, working on my glutes. I don't even know where those are. That's a bad never mind. I really didn't know what that was. My biceps, yeah. Nice enough. Oh man. I'm so glad technology has a rewind button and a race and things like that. So It's not like as a church we either work on our fellowship and strengthen that to the detriment of inviting people in. It's not like, oh, we're going to spend so much time on being a great church inwardly. We just don't have any time for the people out there. Do you know that when we are the kind of community and people God designed us to be, that when you invite someone into that, it is appealing, it is exciting, that deep down in the heart of all of the people who are lost and hurting and broken, they look in and they say, are you telling me that you guys are connected A kind of burden sharing, praying for each other, generous, sacrificial kind of connection. Is that what you have going on here? And is it real? And is it trustworthy? And it's not going to be it's not going to be taken out from underneath my feet. I want in. The inwardness that we enjoy as a part of the Spirit of God is a testimony to the outside world. And at the end of the day, God is faithful. God is faithful to add to their number day by day those who are being saved. I want to talk just for a moment about the connection of the church. It is in vogue in our world to be individually spiritual. It is all the vogue in the world to have a me and Jesus and my latte kind of Christianity. Here's the reality of our text. God does not save someone without adding them to the number of the church. And He does not add someone to the church without saving them. These are inseparable realities. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you want the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, then you take on and bear the burden of forgiving your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you desire to be made alive in Jesus Christ, then the lives of the people around you have been given to you as an inheritance, not an optional, if I get around to it, relationship. The Lord is adding to their number, to their community, those who are being saved. And I want to call you to a kind of life of generosity that is not simply from one huge mountain peak to the next. Sometimes as churches, we get into this trap where we look around and we're like, you know, it's been like two years since we had some of that evangelism stuff. You know? Anyone have a barn we could rent? Like know a good comedian or a band? Like, We need, like a, we need, we need an event so that we can check the evangelism box for 2015 and then we can move on. Their life lived together in relationship was an ongoing day-by-day witness to the gospel and God is using their lives he's using it it's not them i'm so grateful just like verse 39 the whom the lord calls to himself again 47 luke emphasizing the sovereignty of god over all these things the lord is the one who saves the lord is the one who adds to their number day by day we receive the fullness of the holy spirit and god causes growth let me pray for us so that we'd be these kind of people. God, we, we love you. And we want to walk in your ways. We want to be the kind of people that love you in obedience. Uh, your son said, if you love me, obey my commands. And so God, we, we pray that you'd help us to wrestle with with your word. Help us to be devoted, to be persisting in coming underneath the word, underneath teaching. Help us to persist.